So, let's kick right into it. First section, God knows who you are. Verses 1 through 6. So, starting in verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So we see here God sees all of our ways. He sees our getting up and our lying down and our going about. Uh, and it gives you kind of this like security camera image that like as if God has like this giant wall of TVs where he sees everything that we're doing. But then it goes a step further at the end of verse 3 and says, you are familiar with all of my ways. There's a tension there. It's not just, yeah, I can see what's happening. There's a, a knowledge and an understanding of, yes, I know your habits. I know what makes you tick. I know and understand you on a deeper level. He says he is familiar. That's no small thing. Uh, some of you have had the joy of having a friend point out a mannerism that you didn't know you had or point out that you say a word funny and then you'll never be able to unsee it. But it's something that you yourself didn't even know. And yet, God is familiar with all of our ways. Not only does he see our actions and know our actions, he knows our thoughts and our words before we even say them. He knows, it says, he perceives our thought, my thoughts from afar. And then later on, uh, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Before I even begin to speak, he's not just seeing externally what we do, but he knows our hearts as well. He says he hems us in behind and before and places his hand uh, over, lays his hand upon us. Uh, and the only image that I could think of, thinking about that was like when you were a kid, and some of you, when you were kids, would go and catch bugs. And the rest of you, when you were kids, could have had more fun. Um, but you, you, know, you, you catch a bug and you run up and you're like, Mom, look! And by that point, the bug has escaped. And now your mom is wondering, where did the bug go? Why is there, you know, where is this strange bug in my house? But for God, he's, he's got us. We're not going anywhere. He got, he's got us in for what's going on ahead of us and for where we've already been. And he's covered over us. So we're not going anywhere. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But back to God's knowledge. He knows. He knows the good and the bad. And that can be scary for us. We're a people who desperately want to be known, but are also terrified of being known. We want so much for someone to understand us, but are afraid that if we let someone understand us, they will see those hard things about us and turn away. That they'll see our sin and think, mm, no, mm -mm. nope, not for me. I'll stay over here. And yet, God already knows. Whether you are ready or not, he knows. He saw, as you know, Eric said, he, he sees everything. He saw when you helped that old lady cross the street. He saw when you did the dishes without your mom telling you to. Uh, and he saw that thing that you don't want the person next to you to know about. And he knows those quiet fears and sins that stay in your heart or behind closed doors that you are desperately afraid of anyone finding out about. As one man once put it, he was talking about uh, people coming after us for things that we've done. He said, you know, if they knew the sinner you really were, they'd have worse things to say. And on one hand, that's like comforting that like, oh, like nobody can really come after me that hard because they don't know the sinner that I really am. But on the other hand, like, Oof, man, the things that we, that we keep because we are terrified of people knowing them. 
And yet, this is a, a comforting knowledge where that can be scary, like, oh no, God knows all of these things that I've done. This is a comforting knowledge because of God's reaction to us. It's not as if we are like sneaking a fast one past God where we've got our sin you know, tucked in our jacket like you're sneaking candy into, into a movie theater. You can't pull a fast one on God. Galatians 6 talks about that God cannot be mocked. You're not, you're not tricking him. He's fully aware. He doesn't have some filtered view of you that looks nice and pretty. He knows your sin. But his reaction is love instead of rejection. His reaction is to love us and to seek out our salvation. We see in Ephesians 2 and Romans 5 that God loved us before we were ever inclined to him, before we ever wanted to be with him or even understood his goodness, God loved us. He makes that move knowing our sin, knowing those dark parts. And we end this kind of section here with David saying, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. It's so massive, this idea of God's just all-encompassing knowledge of every part of ourselves, even the parts that we don't understand. It's, it's too much to really put together and get the hang of, to be able to grasp as a concept. So we come to God knowing who we are, and we, we have God knows who you are. He doesn't have some unrealistic view of you. He doesn't have some fancy view that, that you know, doesn't notice that there's sin there. He doesn't have the view of you based on the mask that you put up for your coworkers or your classmates, or your family, or the church. He sees you. He doesn't have an unrealistic view of you, and his reaction is love, not rejection. And we come to our second section here. There's nowhere to run from God. Verses 7 through 12, so join with me, we're going to be reading here. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. You get this question at the beginning. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And David is, is making this argument that there's nowhere to go, that, you, that God isn't. But there's also the, like, it's the question. Where can I go where God won't see what I did? And the answer is nowhere. If I go up to the heavens, well, he's there. I can go down to the depths, but no, he's, he's still there. Think about where, where Israel is geographically. If I go towards the dawn, towards where the sun rises in the east, he's still there. If I try to settle on the other side of the sea, in the west, the Mediterranean Sea, he's still there. Jonah actually tries this. It doesn't go so well. Uh, as he's running from God, his goal being to not call the Gentiles to repent because he doesn't want them to turn to the Lord. And even there, God's guiding him. Even there, God is there. Even at this, this far extreme, even the darkness itself is not enough to hide you from God. Even if you can't see what your own hands are doing, God still sees it. There's no hiding from God. There's no running from God. Now, the hope here is in verse 10. Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So even at these extremes, God is there guiding us. And again, just like the last section, 
there's both ends of that. If you are running like Jonah, even there, you are not outside of God's guiding. Jonah ends up, you know, as we know, swallowed by a big fish. But even then, in his goal to not call Gentiles to repent, the Gentiles in the boat with him go back and worship the Lord. And for us, even as we run to serve the Lord, we see in Matthew at the end, where Jesus says, hey, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything I taught you. Behold, I will be with you till the end of the age. He says he will be with us. So whether we are running or seeking after the Lord, there is nowhere that is out of God's range. There's no area of our life that is too far where God would not, will not guide us. There's no school environment or work environment or family reunion or whatever it might be where it is too far, where God won't guide you in the ways that you need to go. And likewise, there is nowhere that you can go where you are too far gone. There's nowhere that you can go where God will not guide you and bring you back as well. So even if we try to run, he will guide us, and there's nowhere we can go where he will not guide us. And that brings us to our next section. Not only does God know you, he made you. So we have God, God knows us, and he reacts to us with love. There's nowhere that we can run or hide from him. He sees all of where we are, and he guides us in the middle of it. And now he made us. So starting in verse 13 with me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So God knows us not only in an observational sense, with seeing and knowing us, and in an involved sense, with interacting with us and guiding us, but also in a creative sense. He made us. He knows everything about us on every level because he was the one who put us together. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And we see this term that we were made fearfully and wonderfully. And I don't know about you, but that's always been kind of a weird phrase for me. Because I think, okay, like the only good context of fear that we have in the Bible is like the fear of the Lord. Like, but that's like from us to God. So how does that work if we are fearfully made by God? How does that work? And it's this idea here that you are reverently made. God was not careless when he put you together. All the things that you are, he was not careless when he made you that way. When, you know, it was not some just, oh, well, here's the genetic combination we've got here. We'll just throw it in a bucket, stir it up, and see what we get. No, God is he's paying attention. He is not blind to what he is making. He is careful about every aspect of you. He has planned our days together. And there's the hope there in that passage, in uh, the end of verse 16, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He knows every day that you will have because he planned it. So not only does he know you and everywhere that you could possibly be, and also he made you, but he also knows every time that you will stand in. 
He knows every situation you will stand in. In fact, he planned them to be that way, which is sometimes hard, but also reminds us that, okay, I'm in this position. God has placed me here for a reason. And in some way that I might not understand yet, he knows what he's doing because he knows me in every possible way and he loves me. So there must be something good coming out of this. We're made wonderfully this idea that it's beyond our comprehension. There are, like I said, there are still so many times where someone will notice something about you that you didn't even know. Even medically, biologically, we have all these amazing medical advancements. And there are still plenty of times where it's just, hmm, I don't really know what's going on there. You know, there are still areas that we don't even understand, even on a scientific side, of how the body works, how the mind works. So we get to this, the end of this collection of praise here of praise to God for his knowledge, for his love for us, for his understanding of us. And we get this uh, worship, this rejoicing here. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. It's always seemed like kind of an odd way to end that phrase. When I'm awake, I'm still with you. Because I, then I look back and like, wait, we're not asleep. No, nobody's asleep yet. So we're waking up like what's, What's going on here? And this idea being that like God's thoughts are so numerous and vast that if we were to even try to count them, his thoughts and actions, we would literally pass out from exhaustion before making a dent in it. That we would just keep going and going and going and eventually just be totally wiped and not even have begun to talk about who God is and his acts for us. But then when we awake, He's still there, and we are still with him. So even though we cannot possibly comprehend him, he stays with us. So God designed you carefully and planned the events that would happen in your life, and he cannot be distracted by these plans. His, his thoughts are vast. There is no, hey, uh, something just happened. Figure it out for a couple minutes. I'm going to go take care of this. He's taking care of that and still sees you and still guides you, and still moves you through his plans. And we can trust his plans because he knows us better than we know ourselves. And that brings us to our final section here. The greatness of God reveals evil for what it is. Now this is where things get a little odd. Uh, at first glance, you'll notice why people stop at verse 18 usually when they read this, uh, this passage. It gets a little interesting. It gets a little awkward. And we've been talking with our students about how we don't shy away from passages that are awkward or uncomfortable because they're still the Bible. We don't get a pass on reading them just because it makes us a little uncomfy. Instead, we dig in and we figure out, okay, what is this saying? What does this mean? And so this, this passage is definitely a situation where that occurs. So you see, uh, we've got these, these 18 whole long verses of God's knowledge and how wonderful he is and how he's made us and all these wonderful things. And we come into verse 19, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. That's the tone change. <laughs> Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. How do we, what do we do with that? That's a big shift from, God, you're great, to kill the wicked. And where do we bridge that? Especially when we think about like the New Testament, where Jesus says, hey, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, what do we do 
what do we do with this then? Uh, there's a couple of ways that people have tried to understand this passage, uh, some of which who have said like, oh, well, David is going through something right now. There's some enemy or whatever, and he's, he's worshiping God and now bringing his request that God would, would take out the wicked. Uh, it's interesting, though, that he doesn't ask for the green light to go do it himself. He asks for God to enact judgment because even in that moment, David understands that God is the one who gets to judge and not us. Another take on this section is that David is so like in the moment of worship, beholding God's glory, that he can't help but say, I want nothing to do with sin and to be just appalled at the existence of sin in the world. And I think that's a little bit closer to what we're seeing here, that seeing God's glory shows sin for what it really is, true evil. It shows sin for nothing, to be this, this appalling, disgusting thing. And the, the, the mere thought of participating in or in any way, shape, or form in sin like this would just be totally appalling. We see similar threads like this in the first two Psalms, which kind of set the tone for the overall book, that those who don't participate in sin and who take refuge in the Lord are blessed. So seeing, hey, like, don't be around that. He's saying, hey, like, this, this sin is such a problem, and in light of God's glory, just, oh, that it would not be a thing anymore. It's interesting to see then how David ends this psalm in verse 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He goes through all this worship of God for his knowledge of us, his care for us, the time and attention that he has on us. And even in light of that, oh, that wickedness would not be a thing anymore. And now, okay, God, look me over again. See these anxious thoughts that I have. Take any of these things that are not from you, that are not for you, and instead lead me in your ways. And that is a wonderful prayer. So we, as a people, we are often of people who desperately want to be known but are terrified of being known. We're scared to let others see and know the difficult parts of our lives. We're afraid to be rejected, turned away from, uh, shamed even for our sin, for the things that we might not be proud of. And yet here, we find the exact opposite. Whether we're ready or not, we find ourselves before a God who knows who you are, who does not have some fake or filtered view of you, who sees you for who and what you are and reacts with love. We see a God who is everywhere, that even if you try to run, he will guide you. And even if you're in the middle of some dark place and you don't know how you're going to be able to bring Christ to others, he will still guide you. We see a God who designed you carefully, who was not careless when he put you together even with the things that you're not sure if you're a fan of. That he was careful and deliberate in his choices. And that he planned out your entire life in every moment. He knows what he's doing. He cannot be distracted from these plans. There is no event too big to pull God's attention away from you. And then, finally, we see 
that God in his greatness shows sin for what it really is, that it is appalling and disgusting and we don't want to be a part of it. And the thought of taking part in sin becomes just awful. We see that our reaction then is, okay, God, look me over again. Take these things from me. See my anxious thoughts. Take, take these ways that are not towards you. Take them away from me and move me towards your ways. And look, guys, I ask that this would be what you would do, what you would take from this. God knows you. He loves you. Remember this. Remember that you don't have to breach that awkward conversation of, all right, so you don't know this, but actually this and that happened. He's already aware. The ice is already broken there on that conversation. So go to him. Ask him to search you over again. Ask him to turn you over again. To show and reveal the things that are in your life and in your heart that are not of the Lord. And to teach you and lead you back towards his paths. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. For this wonderful body of believers. Lord, you know us. You know our hearts. You know every day that we will ever exist and have ever existed. You know all the hard things that we don't want to talk about. Bring us to seek after you, Lord. Bring us to see your face and then see sin for what it is. Bring us to run to you that you would remove us, remove from us our sinful ways and lead us towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.